Harold Schechter, what's going on, my friend? Nothing too much, you know, like everybody else. Um, spending most of my time at home, though, since I rarely leave the house, even under normal conditions, hasn't been a radical change for me. Um, yeah, you know, I have a very regular routine, a little writing in the morning, uh, some exercise, lunch, nap, and then spend hours uh, saving the world from nuclear Armageddon as a, a member of a CIA special ops uh, unit um, on Call of Duty. Is that your new game? Because I knew you were big on Red Dead Redemption 2. That was your game. Now you switched over. What happened? Oh, I played many games since Red Dead Redemption 2. I can't even think of them all. Last of Us Part 2. Anyway, I've been going through the whole Call of Duty franchise recently. So right now I'm on a Call of Duty Infinite War. I'm about to uh, infiltrate a, a secret terrace facility on the planet Saturn with my team. So anyway, yeah, you know, I mean, at my age, I, I didn't know. I was a little leery at first. I wasn't sure somebody my age, you know, would be able to handle all the different controls. But I discovered if you play for a minimum of three hours a day for six months, you know, you get pretty proficient. So are you good? Well, you know, I'm not like a gamer. I'm not like a young person. You know, sometimes one of my sons-in-law will come over and, uh, you know, he'll get through a game in like 12 hours. That takes me six months to finish. But um, anyway, but yeah, but I'm still better than a lot of people. I hate that we have to do this virtually because our first podcast was done over the phone. And then yeah. the next two or three, we... Uh, <clears throat> we met at a bar, we hung out, and now we're back to phone calls. I feel like I got demoted in the friendship. Is that true? Not at all. Quite the contrary. Um, no, I mean, uh, no, that that could never happen. <laughs> I know you collect classical poison bottle, bottles. I and I wanted to get, yes, I see them right behind you. <clears throat> and I got you a gift. So hold on, let me get a few. Oh, no. So to commemorate your book, Derange, I got you an Albert Fish action figure to hang up oh that's amazing i i saw it online and and then i didn't see it for like four months so i went on like this crazy scavenger hunt to find it so i wanted to bring it to you i didn't know what poison bottles you had so i got you an albert fish action figure for your collection oh that's so amazing thank you now i'm gonna have to like struggle over what whether to remove it from his packaging um, that's always the dilemma i have behind me you see the books are strategically placed the harold checked the books over my left shoulder I have some Yankee action figures, and I'm like, do I take the Babe Ruth figure out? It'll look better out of the package. I, it's always such a dilemma. I know, especially with the Albert Fish one. I mean, you know, I could take it out and have him devour some little babies and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, yeah, but thank you. That was incredibly thoughtful. And first of all, I know we're going to have fun and stuff, but congratulations on your retirement. Uh, how many years were you at Queens College? 42. What made you decide to finally retire? Uh, you know, so I could spend more time on my PlayStation, basically. Um, well, no, I mean, age had a lot to do with it. Um, yes, I mean, that primarily had a lot to do with it. And also, uh, I mean, without going into too much detail, but, you know, teaching has changed a lot in this world. You know, there are certain things that I would teach and certain ways that I would teach them that, uh, you know, in our current social climate, just no longer became possible. So, um, but, you know, but I'd always aimed to retire. 
uh, at 68 or so. I think I actually retired when I was 70. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was time. So. Was it always, let me be a professor and dabble in books, or was it always, I want to be an author and let me just do professor on the side? Was there any mm -hmm. uh, like mix between them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the academic life partly attracted me um, because I knew it would allow me time to write. You know, when you're a full-time, you know, a full professor, um, you know, I taught, well, not initially, but after a while I would teach two days a week. Uh, my first class wouldn't start till 11 o'clock. I'm basically a morning person in terms of writing. So I would always be able to write every day. But at the same time, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, I'm going to get this cushy job, which will allow me to write. You know, I used to, for a very long time, thought of myself as an American literature professor, you know, who wrote books on the side. You know, it wasn't for a very long time that I began to think of myself primarily as an author um, who is already a teacher. But no, I mean, I loved my teaching. Um, you know, I feel very fortunate to have taught where I did at Queens College. Uh, and, you know, I, I was an academic scholar. I mean, you know, I got my PhD in American literature because I love to read that stuff and research that stuff and write about that stuff. So the academic side of my career, you know, is very, very important to me. What do you miss the most about it? Um, well, frankly, at this point, well, you know, every now and then I miss being able to stand in front of a classroom of 30 students or so and hold forth, you know, for an hour and 15 minutes. Um, so, I mean, I do miss that part of it. Uh, but generally, when people ask me how I feel about retirement, it's like I don't actually understand that question. <laughs> You're not working. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, I mean, it, you know, I am working in the sense that I, I do feel very fortunate to, you know, have this other career, really. You know, in, in that sense, I, um, you know, I, I do know there are many, many people who are very unhappy to retire or at the prospect of retirement, you know, because they don't know what they're going to do with their time, uh, you know, between my writing and my PlayStation, that hasn't been a problem for me. So now for the real reason I had you on football, what are your thoughts on the final four of football? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, you have no interest, right? In sports? No, but you know, I mean, I did watch, uh, you know, the uh, Buccaneers yes last night and stuff, but yeah, my interest in sports is minimal. Now I don't want to cause a riff in our friendship, but uh, I think the last time you came on the podcast, we were talking and I said, it's very weird that there's no books on school shootings besides David Cullen's book, Columbine. That was the only book I really knew that really delved into it. And mm -hmm. then, you know, I'm fiddling around online. I get the email that Harold Schecht is coming out with a book, Maniac, on March 9th. I don't want to say I should have some of the royalties, but did I have anything to do with the with that book? You know, it was all inspired by you. Um, <laughs> you know, now I, I feel bad that I... I dedicated it to one of my lifelong friends. Now I realize that was a mistake. But um, but anyway, yeah. Um, yes. Well, well tell well, me that, about that book, yeah. Maniac, The Bath School Disaster and the Birth of the Modern Mass Killer. Tell me about it. Well, um, as you know, um, I've always been interested in uh, historical crimes, crimes from the American past that were, in their own day, these huge media sensations um, that have faded totally from public memory. Uh, and, and in fact, I wrote a book years ago 
uh, called Psycho USA, Famous American Killers You Never Heard Of, um, which was a collection of short essays about a bunch of these kinds of killers going all the way back to the early 1800s. Uh, and actually, Kehoe is one of the ones that I wrote about and discovered when I was writing that book. Uh, and then I decided to develop it into a book of its own. Um, but uh, so Kehoe was a Midwestern farmer, lived in a little community called Bath, Michigan, uh, less than an hour's drive outside of Lansing. Uh, he was a respected member of the community. Uh, you know, his family had roots in the in the area. Um, and, you know, back then they would have these little one room schoolhouses throughout the Midwest. And there was a movement back in the 20s uh, to what they call consolidate the schools, you know, to create in these communities one large modern school which would educate children from kindergarten up through high school. And they, they built a very modern consolidated school in Bath that was the pride of the community. Kehoe uh, and other people too, but Kehoe and especially, especially um, developed this obsessive resentment against the creation of this school, largely because it increased his taxes and he was, you know, going through some financial difficulties, extreme financial difficulties. Uh, and, and he was growing again for reasons that are not entirely clear, increasingly paranoid. Uh, and, and, and partly because he had put himself up for several elections, uh, you know, as town officials and was not elected. Anyway, um, in the spring of 1927, he had a key to the school because he was a member of the school board. Uh, he began to acquire all of this surplus World War I explosive called Pyrotol. You know, the government had all this dynamite left over, you know, after the war ended, and they decided to convert it into what they called pyrotol. Pyrotol was dynamite, it was a little less potent than your average stick of TNT. Um, but they sold it to farmers uh, so that, you know, for clearing stumps and boulders right. off their farm. So um, uh, Kehoe acquired about 500 pounds of this stuff, which was the amount that farmers were allowed to purchase. And unbeknownst to anyone, he, he was sneaking into the school at night and he rigged up the basement of the school with hundreds of pounds of this explosive. And Kehoe is very mechanically inclined from a very early age. So he concocted these timers out of alarm clocks and he set them to go off on the last day of school when he knew that basically every kid in the community was going to be in the school. So on that day, which I think was May, I could check it. I think it was like May 18th, 1927, you know, just after school started, uh, this timer went off and this massive explosion occurred. Fortunately, uh, something went wrong with the wiring uh, under a lot of the school, but 
one entire wing of the school completely disintegrated in this explosion uh, and ended up killing 38 school children, uh, a number of teachers. Meanwhile, Kehoe, you, you know, all these parents and other people we would now call first responders hurried to the scene, began trying to frantically dig out, you know, the kids and the teachers underneath all the rubble. Meanwhile, while this was going on, Kehoe, uh, who had a little while before murdered his wife and rigged up his own home and the outbuildings with more of this explosive, he detonated that, then drove his Ford pickup truck, which he had loaded with shrapnel and more dynamite, down to the school and called some people over. He had had some conflicts with the school supervisor, some other people, called them over and detonated his truck and blew himself and these other people up. So altogether, I believe, you know, the number was 38 children and seven adults he killed. So this was the deadliest school massacre in U.S. history. It was the worst case of domestic terrorism before Timothy McVeigh. And it was the first suicide car bombing in the country. Now, this, of course, made not only national headlines, it made international headlines. In fact, Adolf Hitler sent a, a letter of condolence to the community. <laughs> I mean, it was known all over the world. But a couple of days later, completely, completely disappeared from the newspapers. And the main reason for that was two days after it happened, Charles Lindbergh made his flight across the Atlantic. And, and that was, of course, you know, one of the major, major events of the 20th century. You know, the New York Times uh, had this big, big front page story on the Bath School disaster. A couple of days later, the first 16 pages of the New York Times were devoted to Lindbergh's flight. So it was, you know, immediately forgotten by everybody, you know, except obviously, you know, the people in the Midwest and Bath, particular in Michigan, you know, who, who, uh, who, you know, whose lives were so profoundly affected by it. So, yeah, so that was a that's the story of the Bath school disaster. And, you know, in doing my research and based on my knowledge of other, you know, what are called crimes of the century of the 20th century, Leopold and Loeb and Lindbergh baby kidnapping, and, you know, all the way up to the OJ thing. You know, I came to feel that the Bath school disaster has a claim really to be, you know, the most awful American crime of the 20th century. Now, when a school shooting, uh, shooting happens now, Sandy Hook, Columbine, how doesn't this get brought up? Is it lazy reporting or is it just that it's just not known by anybody? Well, it does actually get brought up, but it only gets brought up, you know, it'll tend to get brought up like in Michigan. Okay. You know, when when Sandy Hook happened, and, and I, I think I speak about this, you know, in the last chapter of my book, maybe or somewhere in the book, um, you know, when Sandy Hook happened, 
you know, there will be newspaper articles about the worst school massacres, mm -hmm. and it, it will often be, you know, put on the top of the list. Um, so, 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 you know, there have been references to it. Uh, and of course, you know, there are many articles where like, you know, after Sandy Hook, excuse me, there'll be, you know, an article in the Lansing, Maiden Lansing newspaper, you know, how it brings up all these terrible memories for the people in Bath, Michigan, and so on and so forth. But again, for the most part, it's uh, totally faded into obscurity. I think partly because, again, you know, there, there are certain, my theory is that there are certain crimes, types of crimes, uh, that become sort of the signature crimes of a particular era, you know, that people are very obsessed by. Mm -hmm. So in the late 19th century, for example, people are totally obsessed with poison murders. You know, it was like, I mean, there were a number of very sensational poison murders, you know, but, but the poisoner, the secret poisoner, particularly the woman poisoner, you know, became this cultural boogeyman. You know, the 1930s, there was an obsession. I've also written about this with sexual psychopaths. Um, obviously, in the 1970s and 80s or 80s into 90s was the serial killer. Mm -hmm. You know, then it became the mass murderer. We're still living more in the age of the mass murderer, you know, as the our cultural boogeyman than the serial killer. So part of me is part of the thing I think is that it seemed so anomalous at the time, you know, that it just didn't strike a chord with the public. I mean, you can imagine, God forbid, you know, if something like that happened today. But, uh, you know, but back then it just seemed so bizarre. And also, I think partly because it happened so far away from any media center. I mean, although, yeah, so all those reasons, the Lindbergh case, you know, the fact that people weren't obsessed with school massacres or terrorism, um, mass murder, uh, and the fact that it happened, you know, in what for, you know, a place like New York would have been the middle of nowhere. Right now, when something happens big, it's the hot takes. We need security guards and cops in schools. We need stricter gun controls. After that happened, were there any outcry for more uh, change or more help like that? Uh, no, not really that I know of. Again, it, it just seems so, you know, like if this one-off thing, you know, like this act of this lone madman, you know, that was unlikely ever to be repeated, uh, that, uh, you know, there wasn't the kind of call for greater uh, school security that, you know, we experienced, yeah. Did you write this book during quarantine or was it beforehand? No, it's beforehand. Okay, uh, I was going to ask, like, did your research change at all? Would it have changed at all? Did you go out to Bath? I did go out to Bath. Um, yeah, I went out to Bath. Uh, there's a little, what they call a museum in what is now the middle school. Uh, it's not really a museum. It's, you know, like the hallway outside the main auditorium. You know, there are these various display cases. Um, but there was, you know, very interesting stuff there. But there is a little park nearby where they have the cupola, never know how to pronounce that word, uh, cupola, cupola, you know, the thing that stands on top mm -hmm. of it, uh, which is the only part of the original school that sur still survives. And they have a little memorial there. I mean, one of the most disturbing, upsetting, heartbreaking things you know, is that the, they have the nearby cemetery 
and you walk through the cemetery and there are all these little headstones, you know, for the children, you know, they all obviously, you know, have the same exact date of death and so on and so forth. I keep mentioning the pandemic and your future book. Let's talk about the last book. And because of the pandemic, we couldn't do it live, but rip from the headlines, the shocking Mm -hmm. true stories behind the movie's most memorable crimes. Mm -hmm. Do you remember enough about that book that we can chat about it? Um, Maybe. <laughs> I remember some of it, but yeah. But, but yeah, as you know, I mean, as I think I said before, you know, usually when I write a book, by the time a book of mine is published, I'm already so deeply into my next project mm-hmm. that I've totally forgotten what I've written. But um, but I'll give it a try. Here's how you know it's a good book. I'm not a movie guy. I might have seen in my life, Harold, maybe 50 movies. And that's the truth. I just don't watch movies. Oh, 50 and so, whole life? That's it. I just don't watch movies. Like I watched The Godfather for the first time maybe nine months ago. Wow. Yeah, so I don't watch any movies. But after, so you, when that book came out, I'm like, ah, am I going to like it? You <laughs> knocked it out of the park. I actually went back and watched a few movies on it. That's how much I loved it. So that was an absolute five-star to have me so compelled to want to read every chapter that says so much because I just don't watch movies. Wow. Okay, I never knew that about you. Um, I mean, it's a little shocking to me. I'm just taking a minute here to process this, but okay. <laughs> But thank you. Was there a movie or a book that initiated this whole thing? Because you're like, okay, I'm going to do 40 or 50 movies yeah. that, that were based on true crime. Was there one or two movies that you're like, let me save this for a rainy day. This can be a book of all different movies. Hmm. Well, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, going back to the very start of my you know, true crime writing career, uh, you know, the first book I wrote in that genre was uh, Deviant about Ed Gein. Uh, And part of my interest in the Gein case, you know, was that it inspired uh, Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then afterwards, uh, Silence of the Lambs in part. Um, So I was always aware of the fact that um, there were movies that many people didn't know were based on true crime cases. Um, It also partly relates to my academic career uh, because you know, there are, there are a number of classic American works of fiction that people are not necessarily aware were inspired by real crimes. Um, I mean, even Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart, uh, you know, the one about where the guy kills somebody and an old man and, you know, buries his, uh, you know, buries him or boards him up uh, in the wall. Um, in the wall or no, that's the black cat telltale heart. It's under the floorboards, um, was, uh, partly inspired by a a real crime that Poe knew about, uh, Theodore Dreiser's an American tragedy, um, classic work was inspired, which was later made. It's one of the books I, one of the movies, well, one of the books I cover in Rift from the Headlines. Um, was based on a real crime. So I was always aware that there were these works of fiction which had been inspired by factual crimes that had then been turned into movies. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I started thinking, (coughs) excuse me, more and more about that, began putting together a list of those films. You know, and then I realized there was a subject there for a book, so... The result was Riff from the Headlines, which covers 40 different movies, again, fictional movies, 
that were inspired by real life crimes and that most people are not aware were inspired or had some connection to real life crimes. Difficult for a guy like you. Now, you've done both kind of books. You've done short story books and um, I guess fragmented books like this. Was it difficult for you? Because I know there's some stories in here like the honeymoon killers and stuff that yeah. could be full featured books. Was it difficult to limit yourself to a certain number of pages? No, um, not at all. On the contrary. I mean, I kind of, you know, I, I like writing in that kind of form. And, um, you know, I sometimes look back at the books that I wrote and think, wow, I'm really glad I don't have to write those books again. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because they, you know, they, it requires a certain amount of energy. You know, I mean, I don't want to, like, have people feel too sorry for me or feel too sorry for myself. But, you know, there's a way in which undertaking like, a, you know, a, a big, you know, a massive book requiring massive amounts of research and so on and so forth has become an increasingly daunting prospect. Not that I don't necessarily plan to do it again, um, but, you know, but I enjoy writing those shorter essays. I know most of your interviews and podcasts probably focus on the same two or three movies, which mm -hmm. everyone knows, Psycho, this and that one. I want to start from the beginning because I actually saw Alpha Dog. It was one of the movies I saw. And I was always, I guess, fascinated with it, maybe because it was on America's Most Wanted and maybe because of the character Jesse James Hollywood. What do you yeah. think of that whole story? What about your thoughts on Alpha Dog? Uh, well, I don't really remember that. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, yeah, I mean, I remember it in broad outline. I thought the movie was great. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I thought Justin Timberlake was excellent. Uh, you know, it's a very heart-wrenching story. Um, and I thought that, uh, you know, this whole notion, you know, these two, you know, two guys involved in this, this sort of drug trade, you know, who start having this vendetta, you know, one of these guys thinks it's a good idea to abduct the other kid's younger brother. Um, you know, and, and the whole, you know, the whole aspect of it where the young brother, you know, kind of forms a bond with these guys. Uh, and, you know, is treated almost like a friend of theirs, you know, and then they end up killing him. I mean, the scene in the movie, um, I forget who plays the younger brother in the movie, although I'm sure I could find out easily enough. But, um, you know, the scene where he realizes he's going to be killed by these two guys he thought were his buddies, you know, it's very, very heart wrenching. Yeah, that's brutal when he looks at them because, you know, he had the chance to leave. And even witnesses in real life said that he had the opportunity to leave mm -hmm. numerous times and he never left. So that always bothered me. They could have left and ended up trusting them and they, they betrayed his trust. That always bothered me. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, it's terrible. You know, again, it, uh, the movie did that very, very, very well. So The next one, The Hills Have Eyes. True oh, yeah. story. That was the one that was like, true story. Yeah. Can't. What's up with that? Well, I mean, The Hills Have Eyes was inspired by what we would have to call the legend of uh, this uh, feral Scottish family um, headed by a guy named Sonny Bean. Uh, and I guess, again, I have to relook at my book. I'm going to say 12th century, but it was something like that. Um, and supposedly Sonny Bean and his incestuous clan you know, who inhabited this cave and would prey on unwary travelers uh, and not only rob them, but presumably cannibalize them. You know, this is a story that for a very long time uh, was perpetuated as being a true historical fact uh, and appears in various books. 
uh, scholars have more recently raised serious questions about whether the Sawney Bean family or anything like the Sawney Bean family actually existed. You know, it's still somewhat of an open question. Um, but I mean, it, it is, you know, it does appear in a number of, you know, very ancient history, historical books, you know, as a, as a fact. So, uh, you know, that became the basis for the Wes Craven movie, very creepy movie, you know, about this all-American family, you decide to take a detour, always a bad idea in a Hollywood movie. Um, and his car breaks down in the desert, you know, and then they're set upon by this creepy cannibal family. So, um, but again, whether it is based on true history or legendary history is very much open to question. Now, the final one, this is going to be weird for me because I collect old and classical newspapers. So, like, I love rare newspapers that are just men on the moon when uh, Pearl Harbor got bombed, when the Yankees signed Babe Ruth. So I saw I collect all these different. Where do you get them? Do you have a particular dealer? Yeah, uh, rarenewspapers.com. Okay, yeah. It's probably the same guy. This guy named Timothy Hughes. Yes, he was on my show. Oh, okay. Yeah, I get uh, stuff from him, too. Oh, I love it. And, and so when you brought up Double uh, Indemnity, is that the one with Ruth Snyder? That's one of the Holy Grail newspapers, which I can't find anywhere when it's dead and it's a picture of her in the electrical chair. So yeah. tell me about that movie and that story, because that one, that's one of those newspapers that I'm like, how no one kept it. I'm like, I wish someone had that because that's like one of the Holy Grail ones for me. Yeah, I think I saw they, they actually, um, going back maybe two years now, um, they had a show on tabloid photography at the Metropolitan Museum, and they had a, a copy of that paper. Well, the Ruth Snyder Judd Gray case was one of the, again, crimes of the century of the 1920s. You know, Ruth Snyder was this um, Queen's housewife, uh, unhappily married, uh, who started an affair with this kind of mousy corset salesman named Judd Gray. And uh, at her prompting, uh, they devise this plan to murder her husband. She had taken out a life insurance policy, which had a double indemnity clause, meaning that if he died accidentally or under some violent circumstances, um, the insurance policy would be worth twice as much. Uh, they murdered this guy. They, you know, thought they'd committed the perfect crime. <laughs> you know, uh, Judd Gray hit him, you know, with a sash weight and, you know, instead of kill, you know, when when Snyder wasn't killed, when Snyder started shouting, um, Judd Gray called Momsy. That was his pet name for Ruth. Momsy, come help me. You know, she ran over and they ended up garroting Snyder. And then they tied her up and, you know, tried to make it look as though the house had been broken into. And in the course of this burglary, he had gotten murdered anyway. You know, they were arrested like within 24 hours. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. Um, you know, she claimed she'd been hit on the head and was unconscious for five hours and stuff. And <laughs> she claimed her jewelry had been stolen and then the cops found it under her mattress. And anyway, a famous writer, Damon Runyon, the guy who wrote the stories at the famous Broadway show and movie Guys and Dolls was based on, he called it the Dumbbell Murders. Um, but anyway, you know, the culture became obsessed with this crime, uh, partly because Ruth herself, you know, came to be seen as the personification 
of a of a kind of woman you know that the culture you know had become very very scared of the new liberated you know free living flapper of the 1920s uh, and, uh, you know, the public really demanded her execution. So, yeah, they were both executed. And very famously, the Daily News, which was the leading tabloid of the time, brought in a Chicago photographer named Tom Howard, uh, got him a front row seat at the execution. And he had this little camera uh, that he had uh, rigged up to his ankle. Um, and... Uh, at the moment the, the executioner pulled the switch, he, he took this famous picture, as you say, most famous picture in the history of tabloid journalism, you know, of Ruth at the moment of her execution. And in the book, I also mention um, there's another little known but really interesting movie with Jimmy Cagney called Picture Snatcher. Uh, and he's based on Tom Howard. And in the course of that movie, he does the same thing. He gets into this execution with this little camera and takes his picture. So, you yeah. Have a, you have a lot of connections. You have to get me that newspaper. Is that a deal? I'll give it a try, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of, it's interesting. I mean, um, often uh, when I'm working on a, a particular case, um, I will get newspapers about that case from Timothy Hughes. Do you know him personally or just through? I, like, I don't know him at all. I just order newspapers from him. Gotcha. Most important or best uh, true crime inspired movie in your opinion? Well, hard to say. I mean, obviously, you know, you've got to put Psycho up there. Mm -hmm. um, let me take a look at my table of contents before I totally answer that question. And by the way, you know, uh, it, it, the book doesn't include things like Bonnie and Clyde and so on, because those are explicitly based on true crimes. Mm -hmm. You know, my book covers movies, you know, that many people don't realize were based on true crimes. Well, I'd have to put um, uh, way up there, Terrence Malick's Badlands, which I'm guessing you haven't seen. I have not. Yeah. Um, but Terrence, Mad you know, is that uh, Terrence Malick's uh, Terrence Malick's debut feature. It's an amazing movie um, uh, about this young couple, Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek, back in their younger days, uh, who go, uh, you know, who live in Nebraska, I guess, um, uh, who go off on this killing spree. And it was based on you know, this very, very famous case um, uh, of a guy named... Uh, uh, Charlie Starkweather and his underage girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate, uh, who did the same thing. Uh, they were this young, these young lovers. Uh, first they kill, he killed her whole family and then they, um, you know, hijacked a bunch of cars and, uh, drove around the badlands, um, you know, murdering, uh, various people. They were unlucky enough to cross their paths. Um, and, you know, that's a very famous crime. I mean, Bruce Springsteen's um, album, Badlands, you know, is partly inspired by the Charlie Starkweather case. Uh, and there have been some other movies. There's a little movie called The Sadist, mm -hmm. which is also based on it. Um, but, yeah, but Badlands is a very, very beautiful, powerful movie that I highly recommend to people. <laughs> it'll, it'll be watched this weekend. Uh, okay. a, a question now. You mentioned, obviously, how you retired. 
as an author, someone as creative as you, your head's always like a, you know, a hamster wheel, always thinking, is retirement ever an option for an author or is there always something in the back of your mind? Yeah, well, you know, no. I think authors are lucky in that way um, because, again, uh, you do need something to do if you're retired. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, some people are happy just playing golf or whatever. Um, but, yeah, you know, writing... You know, people sometimes will say to me, since I've published uh, quite a bit, that you must be very disciplined. And what I always say is, it's not discipline, it's a habit. You know, after a while, this becomes very habitual. And like any other habit, if you don't do it, I mean, if I don't write for a day or two, as my wife will attest, you know, I'll become incredibly, you know, incredibly anxious and whatever. So, um so, yeah, I mean, writing is just something I have to do. I mean, I don't necessarily do it as long as I used to. I mean, you know, I tell people I'm a human dynamo between like 8.30 a.m. and 10.30 a.m., um, you know, which is when I do my writing mostly. Uh, after that, again, it's basically napping and playing, you know, Call of Duty, Infinite War. You mentioned your wife. When I want to go to a country, a new country, if I want to, you know, even a podcast guest, I'll bounce it off my wife. I'm like, oh, I want to have on so-and-so. Would that be interesting? Or I want to visit this country. What do you think of it? When you have an idea for a book, who do you bounce it off of? Well, I will often discuss it with my wife, who, as you know, is a, a well-known poet mm -hmm. um, and who is also, you know, kind of interested in a lot of the darker uh, stuff that I'm interested in. Um, so, yeah, I often will discuss uh, sort of potential projects. I mean, I generally discuss potential projects with her uh, and get her feedback. So um, then, of course, you know, I might also bounce it off my agent, <laughs> you know, <laughs> see what he thinks about it. So. Okay, ready to finish up with some quick hit questions? Okay. One show you found yourself binge watching during the quarantine? Hmm. Well, we've been binge watching a lot of. British mysteries, my wife and I. Mm -hmm. So, um, Happy Valley, Vera, uh, also some Nordic ones like the original Wallander. Um, right now, we're doing one called DL and Pasco. So, yeah, um, you know, it's something that appeals to both of us. Um, so, yeah, that's what we've mostly been binge watching. I believe you did an audio book for this one. Did you enjoy that process? Is that something you're going to do again? Well, various books of mine have been made into audio books, but I don't do them. Oh, you no. don't do the reading? No. Okay. You, you no interest in doing it? No. They get professional. You know, I, I leave that to the professionals. One true crime book that you read that you mm -hmm. were like, damn, I should have wrote a book on that subject. Oh, written a book on the subject? Uh, gee, um, I don't really know of any that I feel that way about. I mean, you know, the funny thing is, I, I don't actually read a lot of true crime. Okay. Uh, you know, so much of my time is spent researching the stuff, you know, and reading the works about the, those particular crimes that I don't feel that I, I don't really read a lot of true crime. I mean, you know, obviously... You know, the book that made the greatest, had the greatest impact on me was Capote's book in Cold Blood. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, 
you know, which I have always, always saw, particularly the beginning of my career, you know, as a kind of model on how to structure that kind of narrative. Um, Tim Cahill wrote a book on John Wayne Gacy called Buried Dreams uh, that I'm a big admirer of. Um, you know, and I've read, obviously, others, but um, but I can't, well, yeah, I mean, I wish I'd written in cold blood, <laughs> but, but I didn't, and I couldn't. So. I'm not sure if I've asked you this. What was your reaction the first time you saw someone reading your book out in public? Like a stranger, you see a stranger reading your book. What was your reaction the first time you saw it? Yeah, um, I think, yeah, I remember somebody reading one on the subway. Um, I guess it was like, hey, guess who's sitting across from you? Um, so, yeah, it was that kind of reaction. Did, did you go up to them? I can't remember. I mean, I, I, I might have sidled up to them. And uh, elbowed them in the rib, <laughs> you know. So, guess who wrote that book? You know that kind of thing. Right before you came on, I did a quick Google search, and your name came up on IMDb. And I thought it was for the H. H. Holmes documentary that I almost texted texted you at two in the morning. I'm watching it at two in the morning, and I'm like, yeah. I can't text Harold at two twenty three in the morning to let him know I'm watching this. But it came up something Law and Order. What What did you do on Law and Order that got you an IMDb credit? Oh, I co-wrote an episode. Which episode was it? Uh, it was in the eighth season. It was called Castaway. Um, it was sort of very loosely based on the Andrew Cunanan case. Mm -hmm. um, you know, about this gay guy who's going around murdering people. Um, my main contribution to the script was in the second act. Um, you know, the trial. Uh, because we had my co-writer, a guy named David Black, um, and I, we had the defense attorney arguing that uh, these murders were inspired by all the violent media the killer had been exposed to, which was a subject you know, that I've always been very interested in, that, that I wrote a book about, actually. I wrote a book called Savage Pastimes, Cultural History of Violent Entertainment. Um, which looked at how violent popular culture has always been and kind of argued that contrary to what a lot of, you know, moral crusaders claim, um, contemporary popular culture is in many ways actually less violent than it was in the past and that there is no correlation between violent media and actual acts of violence. And you know, that there's always been this, no matter, you know, as soon as any new form of popular entertainment is invented, you get all these blue-nosed moral watchdogs, you know, claiming that it's going to corrupt the youth of America. You know, there's never any proof of that. So, I mean, that's a subject back then in particular I was very passionately interested in. And that, uh, you know, so that episode of Law and Order dealt with that issue. Did you enjoy doing that, being around everybody? Um, well, you know, I'd also, I'd done a little TV writing before that. Uh, so, yeah, it's always cool, you know, to be around celebrities and stuff. But but the process itself I didn't enjoy, which is why I didn't pursue it. You know, because it turns out, you know, it's very high pressured. You know, it's like, you know, you don't do anything for a long time and suddenly, you know, there's this incredible amount of pressure being applied on you. And, you know, I'm not used as, you know, I'm an academic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, used to, I was used to like teaching two days a week, starting at 11 o'clock and ending at three. 
um, you know, I wasn't used to like actual pressure from people. So, Dr. Harold checked it. When I say this is an honor and it's not a joke, I have a ton of guests. So I'm very fortunate to interview cool people. You're hands down my favorite author. And it's not just because the all your books over my left shoulder. You've always been my favorite author. And then to have a relationship with you, it's always such a blast. So please give the plug where everyone can buy your stuff, the new books, the old books, and everything. Well, uh, you know, especially nowadays when you're not allowed to venture outside, Amazon <laughs> would seem to be your best choice. So, And let me just say uh, that now that you've given me a gift, you're my favorite person ever to be interviewed by. So, <laughs> Thank you. And I actually have the – because, you know, in one of the books you wrote, To Mike, My Favorite Interviewer. So right. I kept that dear to my heart. We're yeah. going to keep in touch. Thank you for doing this, man. Uh, soon, hopefully, we'll have drinks and we'll catch back up, my friend. That'd be great. Thanks for having me on again, man. Good seeing you. I'll check it. Thank you so much, my friend. Bye-bye.